Welcome to the Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley. This is your Mad Minute for retired U.S. Army Colonel Stuart Harrington, who I met at his home where we chatted about his diverse and accomplished career in military intelligence. He's an authority on interrogation methods, counterintelligence, and corporate espionage. He's written Peace with Honor, Traitors Among Us, and Stalking the Viet Cong. The latter two are still in print. Stuart Harrington joined the military intelligence in 1967, was stationed in Berlin before deploying to Vietnam in 1971. He was one of the last Americans to leave Vietnam during the fall of Saigon. In the 80s, he returned to Berlin to command the 766th MI Battalion, the Army's counterintelligence unit in the occupied city. Eventually, he was handpicked to command the Army's FCA, who, along with the CIA, FBI, and German partners, investigated and rolled up two of the most significant espionage cases of the Cold War, the Canasta player Clive Conrad in 1988 and James Hall in Berlin, Teufelsburg in 1989, the details of which are laid out in his book Traitors Among Us. We chatted on a range of topics often inspired by books on his shelves or photographs he's collected from his prodigious career. The interview begins with a discussion of interrogation techniques and some memoir writing tips before he sets the stage of Cold War Berlin and its comprehensive application of all source intelligence. Begin transmission. You're recording now, huh? Yes. I never wrote a book on the interrogation projects, even though between Vietnam, Panama, and Desert Storm, and then my trip to, uh, after I retired from the Army, they called me back and I went to Guantanamo mm -hmm. to evaluate how were they doing it, incorporating the proven methods that I left after action reports on and cookbook, how to do it, and uh, found out that they hadn't learned a thing, didn't absorb any of it. They were into the brutality thing. Ugh. Worst of the worst, you know, these guys are all the worst of the worst. You can't be kind to them. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Then I went to Iraq a year later to uh, have a look at how they were doing in Iraq after uh, the invasion. And again, it was a replica It was a replica of what I found in Gitmo, namely the things that we had done in Vietnam, Panama, and Desert Storm so successfully were just like it never happened. Why is it that, I mean, we, could, we don't have to talk about this for very long, but my question is why is that something so successful as an interrogation that doesn't dehumanize the, the target? Why is that hard? to teach? Why, why, do you, why do you think that wasn't carried on? Why do you think people didn't pay attention to it? Well, I, I had never gone to the interrogation school at Fort Huachuca, mm -hmm. and to this day I haven't been there. I mean, I think I was on Huachuca once after one of my projects and had a little three people around a desk skull session about it, but there's an entire Army field manual and Army doctrine about interrogation. And it emphasizes that you need to be a chameleon and that you need to do fear up and fear down and all these various approaches that are... It's fear up and fear down. Oh, it's a good guy, bad guy sort it's of thing? references to, you You know, this guy looks timid, looks like he might be vulnerable to a more harsh approach. Mm. He's afraid he's going to be beaten. So let's, let's stoke the fears. Whatever his fears are, let's stoke them and keep him off guard, keep him unbalanced. That sort of thing. Whereas real professional, good interrogators understand from the get-go that you have to assess your source because interrogation is, if you think about it, human. And when you're my potential human source and I want to develop you to recruit you, 
and I handle you in a certain way, basically to get you involved, to get you talking, so that I can do an assessment of you, and generally speaking, to finally get you to do whatever it is I want you to do as my new human source, because you you buy me, you buy into whatever it is I'm telling you, and I, and you normally don't succeed in doing that by slapping people around and humiliating them and making them feel miserable. And that's known by most real professional interrogators. You want to get inside a person's skull. You want to treat them with dignity and respect. You don't want to be a fool about it. You don't want to be, and you sometimes are accused of coddling sources. But I learned early on, if I had an Iraqi brigadier, and he'd been captured, let's say, hypothetically by the Brits or some other coalition ally who'd humiliated him, ripped his, ripped his epaulets off his shoulder, true story, and generally speaking, treated him shabbily, um, they weren't going to get much good information out of him. And if they ratcheted it up and began to use a little bit of brutality and force, dignity slaps or slam wall slamming and all that garbage that came out under the um, Bush administration, sanctioned by... Bush administration lawyers, I might add. If you do that, the best you can hope for is that the guy will tell you something to get you to quit beating on him, but he'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Make it up. Whereas I want you to say, in response to my overture, that you and I are both victims because we just fought the wrong war against the wrong enemy at the wrong time, that the Iranians we both know are the real enemy, and we helped you against the Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. And how it happened that we now wound up fighting one another is regrettable. I hope you agree with me. And of course, any Iraqi is going to agree with that. But now he's agreeing with you, and, and now the conversation goes forth. You create an alignment of, of objectives or goals or a, or a shared... It's what's called in the human trade progressive degrees of involvement. I like the sound of that. I might, I might come in, for example, and say, uh, Marhaba, Amid. Good morning, General. Akbar Jadia. Good news. And give him a newspaper in Arabic, a Saudi newspaper, mm -hmm. which is all catastrophic news for the Iraqi army. You know, people with their hands on their head, thousands of people waiting, you know, Iraqi soldiers waiting for food and water, humiliated. Uh, and I'll give him that and say, I know this won't make you happy, but I think you need to understand that this is what happened. And this is going on as we sit here today. And what am I doing there? Stoking his anger. Who, who's, whose fault is this? And a hardcore Iraqi might say, Bush. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all Bush, you know. Shouldn't have nabbed in our yard. But most Iraqis, if you've established any kind of a rapport with them, are likely to say, look right, look left, they're alone with you in a room, and they're in a special facility that you built so that their other guests there don't ever see one another. So he feels protected and sheltered. If he's in the interrogation chain, sitting in a room with a warrant officer interrogating him with 18 other Iraqis waiting right outside the door, he's going to tell you anything. Yeah. But if you put him in his own private room, just like a motel room, with a rug for praying and a Bible and good Arabic food and you treat him with dignity and respect, and when he tells you that they humiliated him and ripped his epaulets off and slapped him around, you say, tell me, I want, I want to take a report of that. Whoever did that to you will be disciplined. I take mm -hmm. the report. Now, it's part, part of your instinct to treat someone like that just 
come from your own sense of humanity or is it entirely directed toward what your output is? No, you know, I never thought of it as a major achievement to understand that interrogating enemies and trying to get them to tell you things that they normally wouldn't want to tell you was a challenge, but that the way to do it was not to slap them around, but to circle the target mm-hmm. and treat them with dignity and respect and look, get them talking first. Get them talking about anything. Do you have a family? Whatever. Just to get them talking. And I might not ask a question for a long time, but that's just instinctive on my part. Mostly, I think, developed from the fact that when I first went to Vietnam, I saw the other approaches that the South Vietnamese were using. And it was just, you know, primordial. It was just stupid. It was stupid. And I, I realized that this is over-human as opposed to clan-human, but it's human source. It's human and the principles of clan unit, I realized that I'd been trained at Fort Wachu or Fort Holabird, apply to a one-on-one relationship where I'm trying to get you to say things or do things that you normally have been trained by your chain of command not to say or do. You, I read your book, Stalking the Viet Cong, and I guess, I mean, you were with... Um, still in print, you know. It is still in print, so that's... I get royalties on it. To this very day, in the hundreds of dollars. As well, you should. I mean, I just have to say, I'm a real fan of your writing. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of... Your your personal experiences are in there. Um, You don't waste a lot of time. There's not a lot of ego boosting going on. And uh, you have... I took all the first-person singers out of it after I wrote the first draft. On advice of a good buddy, an editor. He said, you know, it's really great. The whole world knows it's your story. You wrote the book. You're the Mm -hmm. principal character. We all know that. So you to reinforce that and remind us every page with first person singular, I this, I that. He said, you should see how many of those eyes you can get out of the manuscript. So how did you get around, that's that's interesting, so how did you get around that? Did you just describe the situation first or did you just start with the other character? No, I I would, uh, instead of saying, uh, I uh, asked the prisoner this or I did this for the prisoner, I'd say... um, we discussed it with Colonel Bartlett, who thought that it would be a good idea to continue on the path that we are to include making sure he had medical care. So now it's me and Colonel Bartlett deciding. Yeah, because for a first-person book, all your writings, I think even in Traitors Among Us, it's sort of carried into that as well. I followed that lesson in every book I wrote. Peace with Honor is the same thing, and that one's really personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the story of the last three months of the fall of Saigon. And uh, I did the same thing with the manuscript. I took out as many eyes as possible. It would either be we or I would depersonalize it so it wasn't anybody in particular. Right. Or it seemed like a good idea at the time to establish a known reference code with my friends out on the border so that if I called them, I could give a one-word message like picnic at my place, and they would understand that to mean come with your families in a, in a single suitcase. Mm-hmm. But instead of saying... I determined this, and or I decided that the best way to do this was to use a little bit of tradescraft in the form of a known reverence code in view of the poor communications between here and the Parrot's Beak and Tainan and Haumea. Uh, I just, I wrote around it. I think that was really effective, and I didn't even notice it, because yeah. when, when I'm reading your books, I always feel like I'm there. And it's a first-person account as well. Yeah. But you don't feel quite that close. I feel like I'm sort of experiencing it. I owe that to a very fine uh, editor. As far as I know, for sure, the person who gave me that advice 
was a then-retired Brigadier General Dave Richard Palmer. And uh, he had published this book, Summons of the Trumpet, which was a macro look at Vietnam, as opposed to, you know, mine, which gets right down into this is where the village and the Viet Cong meet. And this is where, if it worked, it might work up here, but if it didn't work down here, it was never going to work up here. But anyway, uh, Palmer had published his book recently, because I wrote this manuscript in 1978, and it was published in 80, 81. I wrote it in my free time while I was teaching ROTC at the University of South Florida. Mm-hmm. I came to work at 5.30 in the morning every morning, and I sat in my office alone and worked till 8 o'clock. So I want to talk about your other book, Traitors Among Us. But first I want to ask a really broad question. The first time you were in Berlin, you said, was the 1968? 68, 69. I arrived there in June or July 68. Basically what I want to ask is, in just the context of Berlin and your experience, can you just give me like a intelligence 101, the difference between counterintelligence and intelligence? You have to remember that West Berlin, situated as it was in the middle, you know, almost near the Polish border of the East Germany, that Berlin, with its about 5,000 Americans stationed in the Berlin garrison, a couple thousand of them were spooks. Somewhere in the vicinity of about 2,000 of the 5,000 in Berlin. You had the Berlin Brigade right. with three infantry battalions, and you had F Company 40th Armor, mm-hmm. and you had a field artillery. The 42nd Engineers. You had, you had the engineers. Um, you had a, a little bit of a signal support. So the brigade was essentially an independent brigade, and it had to have everything necessary to sustain it, even though one wondered how sustainable things were going to be if you were surrounded by 150,000 Soviet troops. So let's say there are about 2,000 spooks. The reason for that is it was such an outpost in the middle of East Germany. Actually, it was west of the middle, or east of the middle of East Germany. So it was too tempting not to, between the Army and the Air Force in particular, not to put uh, intelligence assets there. So there was a field station Berlin, which was... Uh, Teufelsburg. Yeah, Teufelsburg. There was also a security squadron of the Air Forces, which was the equivalent of field station Berlin. It was at, as I recall, Tempelhof. So you had two signet units, and, and that... That was probably a thousand of the folks, right? Of the spooks, at least, if not more. Because you had U.S. forces in a vulnerable location, you needed your own counterintelligence support. Counterintelligence, in this case, being defensive, mm-hmm. mostly defensive. Um, and the counterintelligence assets were responsible for protecting all of the U.S. mission in Berlin from many, many repeated and unrelenting and uh, uh, continuous attempts by the KGB and the GRU to Soviet intelligence arms. Stasi. The, the Stasi, the East German Ministry for State Security, the SB, the Polish State Security Service, the STB, the Czech State Security Service. You were surrounded and you were the target of Hungarians. All these are there. Even there were Hungarians as well. So you had to have a counterintelligence element, which at a minimum educated all these young snuffies, these grunts, uh, as to what a friendly approach from someone helping, willing to help you buy a car. 
I remember my because someone from the seven sixty six gave that briefing at the initial yeah your initial incoming. I remember probably Billy Cook, civilian named Billy Cook, K O C H probably. It might have been, but he was describing a typical situation in a bar. Somebody starts asking questions. And yeah, I mean, it's a developmental approach, and we had we had uh, these all the time. It was under the subversion and espionage directed against the Army, Saida program. Right, that's what it was. They gave a Saida briefing. The briefing the basically pamphlets they gave you. Said, yeah, if any of these things happen to you, call this number. Don't tell anyone else about it. Just call us privately. Because to a certain extent, we wanted to then run one of those, as in the case of the traitors among us, Lowry. Uh, so you needed a counterintelligence element. And it was not only counterintelligence from the point of view of uh, human approaches, but also they were listening to our phones as well. So you needed telephone discipline. You needed secure lines. Commanders needed to know. You couldn't get on the line to Heidelberg and tell them, you know, three-quarters of the tanks in F Company are down for maintenance because we can't get carburetors. And that information is picked right up right. from the antennas in Karlshorst and relayed to uh, everybody who wishes us ill. So counterintelligence played those roles to include running an, basically a reactive but an offensive operation. Namely, you've been asked by Mr. Uh, Mr. Templeton... If you need help and a loan on your car, he's willing to do that because he's a fan of American forces who protect his and his wife's freedom. And it's a spiel. Mm-hmm. And he's an East German or he's a Soviet agent. If you're that far into the middle of the group of Soviet forces, Germany, whose mission it was, whenever they exercised, you could tell, offensive, to uh, roll up the rest of Germany at a minimum, then... Um, in addition to collecting information on that target by things like the field station, Air Force, or Army, you could also run human sources. And that's, that's in the doctrine. And you know, that much of it is unclassified. That much of it, is, I'm sure, is unclassified. But you would obviously want to have, to the best of your ability, human sources who could reveal things that would show capabilities or vulnerabilities or plans of the adversary force, in this case GSFG, Group Soviet Forces Germany, with Marshal Zaitsev at the time was the commander. Marshal so Zaitsev. Zaitsev is getting his briefing every morning about the status of the Americans in the target area, and we're getting briefings ourselves from all sources on the status of the Group of Soviet Forces Germany. Are they in garrison or are they out of garrison? Are they in a training area? If what if there's a training area, which training area is it? And we're keeping track of that by human, overt, human clan, the USMLM. What's human clan? Human clandestine. Clandestine human. Yeah, recruit re, agent recruitment. You also had the USMLM, and that was another important part of it. And they essentially, under an agreement with uh, the group of Soviet forces Germany. They were a liaison entity, in theory, to the commander of GSFG. And the Group of Soviet Forces Germany had its own military liaison mission. And it was liaising, supposedly, with Sink Usurer in Heidelberg. In fact, it was a license to cruise in one another's areas with eyes open and lenses. Well, we used to see them in the little Ladas. Oh, yeah. You know, the big hats that could barely fit in The Smellum vehicles were in Ladas. Yeah. And the uh, USMLM vehicles were great big Opals. Frequently dark black opals and other other um, West German made vehicles. 
So, so it's safe to say that the American intelligence collection after the wall went up was focused on signals intelligence and whatever the some SNL and we're doing? It was all source intelligence. I mean, we had, for example, there were um, missions that were flown every day from Tempelhof that flew all around West Berlin and had a good look into areas that were in East Germany, East Berlin. Um, there were other flights that flew, and that's imagery intelligence. You also had flights that flew from Rhein-Main Air Force Base near Frankfurt. They, were, they flew the corridors in to West Berlin, and you'd be amazed at 5,000 feet how far you can see right and left if you have the right optics. So they were collecting intelligence that way. They stopped those in the 80s, though. Hmm? Did they stop those in the 80s? Well, no, they, they ran those flights, as far as I know, right up until it became obvious that the whole thing was going to collapse. Part of the reason for running those missions, apart from what they could see and report, was to exercise one's access rights. Remember, those access rights were interrupted by the Soviets when they tried to starve us out of West Berlin in 47 and 48, the infamous Berlin blockade. We flew these missions for more than one reason. This Intelligence collection was one, and just like we run Freedom of the Navigation um, uh, destroyers and cruisers between Taiwan and China, or the, around the Spratly and the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea, which are being claimed and developed by the PRC. So we run ships in there, and the Chinese say it's their territorial waters, for which there is no precedent unless you go back about 2,000 years. So you have to use it, use it or lose it, more or less. Yeah, access rights or whether they're um, on the sea or by air, they provide opportunities for intelligence collection, but also, politically speaking, for demonstrating one's right, freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation, and all that. So jumping back to Berlin, I wanted to ask you, did you know about satellite surveillance and that technology at the time, or was that something that... No, I mean, it was, it was widely known that between that we had platforms mm-hmm. initially U2s and SR71s hence the uh, when Eisenhower was president in 1958 mm-hmm. the U2 shoot down of Gary Powers is U2 so it was widely known in the intelligence community and outside the intelligence community that technical sources satellites or air air breathing platforms um, RF4 phantoms for example are another example of an air breathing platform and an RF-4 Phantom could fly down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and image sections of the Ho Chi Minh Trail quite nicely. Uh, you didn't need an SR-71 at 105,000 feet mm. or, a, or a, a U-2 or, for that matter, a satellite. But satellites, and it's always been one of the more sensitive collectors, but it certainly was no military secret that satellite intelligence as well as air-breathing platforms were collecting. C-130s, for example, I forget what they called them, rivet joint missions were flown like up the middle of the Baltic Sea, but not in Soviet airspace. And they were flying regular routes every... These collectors, air-breathing collectors, were not just taking pictures, they were also listening. And they were either listening to signals intelligence or they were listening for signature intelligence, i.e. non-voice Morse signals, but signals 
that are uh, radar signatures of, uh, and that sort of thing. Look up all source intelligence right. online and see if you can find somebody who can do a far better job than I, you know, with the um, the components of all source intelligence. But it begins with the lowest level thing, which is the uh, engineer on a Reichsbahn, East German Reichsbahn train. And the train goes through Soviet training areas or Soviet garrisons in East Germany. Mm-hmm. And, and you want to uh, be able to talk to him about that. Or task him for what you might be interested in. Let me know immediately if you see any uploading of armored vehicles onto flat cars, indicating a major move of the unit out of the concern, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So you start at that low level, the spy, and you go all the way up to highly sophisticated uh, satellites, and you cover signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, human intelligence, counterintelligence. Offensive counterintelligence, like using a source, mm-hmm. and um, hopefully you can put the piece together, uh, the pieces together. And who was I'm referring specifically to Berlin? I mean, who was putting all the pieces together? Well, the Berlin Brigade. You know, I mean, my office in both assignments was right in Building Three. Mm-hmm. of the clay compound and building three which was the 766th MID the 430th MI battalion the deputy chief of staff for intelligence for the US commander Berlin Dixie Uskob they called it Dixie I've heard of that and yeah. Dixie Uskob that's the place where all the information came together information all source from army field station air force field station Berlin uh, G2 Berlin Brigade and whatever their patrols saw, USMLM, etc., etc. So were those Dixie meetings productive? They had a briefing. They had a briefing every morning for the for the colonel, and they basically they had a, a team of analysts, and they took all the stuff that was coming in, and uh, and then they briefed him, and they had a pretty good picture. I mean, when you've got two thousand warm bodies in a little area like West Berlin, surrounded by fat targets. I mean, the, the place is surrounded by with group of Soviet forces Germany, the East German People's Army, the training areas of the group of Soviet forces Germany, uh, the airfields of uh, the uh, Soviet Air Force, the East German Air Force. If there's so many targets, they had a meaty briefing every morning, as you can imagine. My memory was, it was, the, was in 68, when they were surrounding or massing on the Czech border because of the Prague Spring. And I happened to be the duty officer that night in Dixie Yuska because remember, when I was sent over there, even though I was in the 430th, I actually was told to establish the U.S. Army Europe Security Detachment Berlin, USDB, because the, the unit that I really was assigned to couldn't come to the intelligence business because they were undercover as data processors. So some, some genius came up with the idea, we'll, we'll take this element, these 30 spooks and people who recruit spooks, and we'll put them here, here, and here as Geocoast and Geodetic Survey teams, user news and pictorial service, uh, the um, 338-60th data processing unit, and they created all these covers for all these clan units, these human units. But the impact back to that was that they couldn't hang out in the building where it was all happening. They shot themselves in the foot, in other words. So the mission was to undo that. 
get them back into Building 3. So they sent me to Building 3 as the commander of the U.S. Army Security Detachment, Berlin, USDB. Mm-hmm. And the total strength of it when I signed into the unit was one, me. Then they gave me a secretary. Then they gave me a um, civilian-clad sergeant major just to help me out. I went to the meetings in the morning where they divvied up the refugees, you know, when there were refugees coming across the border and they had camps and they had a joint allied interrogation center, J-Rock, which had teams out at Marienfeld where the refugees came in. And they screened these refugees looking for people who might be of interest to one of the other intel units. For example, I'll make one Who's screening them, Marienfeld? Uh, There were screeners there from Army, Navy, Air Force, and the agency. And I had a team of two that worked for me, German nationals. And they interrogated these people and debriefed them when they came in and did a knowledgeability brief, namely, where are you from, why did you flee, how did you flee, do we believe your story, or are you a plant, are you a provocateur? Do you currently have relatives back there who didn't flee, who have access to this or that training area? Or you say you're from this town, show me on the map where you lived in this town, right here. Uh, that fence, what was on the other side of that fence? Oh, that was the Russians. So these refugees, these were, why were refugees coming across? Or were they because of seeking asylum with the East Germans? Or Because it was miserable in East Germany. I mean, <laughs> everybody wanted out. That's why they built a wall. Oh, so fine. whenever somebody escaped. They whenever anybody escaped. Or were allowed to leave because of their age. These Germans were cynical. They would let the elderly leave because then they didn't have to worry about feeding them and their medical care and everything else. Oh, God. Or they would sell them. Yeah, so you wound up with all these people. Every week there were hundreds of them, and you screened them from the point of view of can they be of some use to this intelligence community here. Let me back up a bit. Every week, this is the 1960, late 60s, there were 100 people. Yeah. It was a very integrated system. Um, God, there was so much information being collected at the time. I'm interested in the, right now, in, in like the instances where someone comes to you and says, I've been approached, and you have a meeting with them, and how do you decide whether or not you're going to continue to use that person in a mousetrap? I think that's the term for it. It's like any other, because it's, a, again, it's another example of an, it's a counterintelligence spawned thing. You've you've put the word out. If anybody ever experiences the following, contact us. Don't tell another soul. So the first thing you got to know is how many people did you tell about this? And if you told the the whole platoon, then you're not likely going to want to use it because the success of these operations depends upon them being close hold and clandestine. And if he's told the whole platoon and his wife and the wife has told her buddies that uh, some creepy guy approached Jerry the other day, then you're going to say, we're not going to do that. You're looking for someone who hasn't told another soul, number one. Number two, you're looking for someone who's not an airhead, somebody who can take and follow instructions, who's solid, solid soldier, uh, appears to have a very good record. You review the person's record. Does he have a good record? Has he been in trouble all the time? Is he credible? Is the story credible? Etc. Etc. And uh, all while you're going through an evaluation process, to determine whether or not this is one, mm-hmm. depending on the target that the guy... Does the guy work for the field station? Priority to protect. Uh, or is he in one of the infantry battalions? 
what's he gonna what secrets is he gonna steal from there you know right. why would they approach a guy in one of the battalions well maybe because they heard that he had money problems mm. can't afford to get his car fixed how did they hear that he has money problems because one of our other intelligence and security functions in that city was single security so we had a team that worked for me that went around to the units and evaluated their telephone procedures their telephone systems their vulnerability and uh, their overall discretion in how they use the phone. So you were allowed to tap in on that? Yeah, so we would go to a unit, only the commander would know we were there, or maybe even the commander might not know, his ops officer knows. SIGSEC, it was called, signal security. You're listening for a guy who's talking to his mother and father in Iowa, saying, you know, we just can't make it over here. Everything's expensive, and uh, my car is broken, and I can't fix it. Uh, we were looking for um, information that would show unit capabilities, strengths, vulnerabilities, our own force posture, as opposed to so-and-so is having an affair with uh, so-and-so's wife or other personal-type things. We had a very integrated, uh, robust, as in the understatement of the world, robust intelligence You're listening to The Live Drop with guest Stuart Harrington, author and counterintelligence expert. We're discussing the cases of Clive Conrad, the American NCO who handed over the U.S. Army Europe General Defense Plan of Europe. This was a well-entrenched spy ring, starting with American soldier Sultan Zvabo, leading to Clive Conrad, who sold documents and information to the Hungarian intelligence through a Swedish courier, and the help of up to 11 others from his job supervising the vault of classified and top-secret documents at 8th Infantry Division headquarters in West Germany. We also talked about James Hall and his possible whereabouts. Hall and his partner, Handler the Turk, or Meister Hussein Yildrim, who sold documents from the Teufelsburg listening station to both the Stasi and the KGB before being caught by Harrington's FCA and later prosecuted in 1989. We talk about their whereabouts. Here I've asked about Clive Conrad. He was aggressive, bold, even arrogant. Uh, he played the role of the absolute indispensable NCO, or the G3 of the 8th Infantry Division, to a fault. But we can't say that he made mistakes and we picked up on him. His handlers made mistakes. The places where the information went, you know, the information was so knock-down, drag-out, sensitive, and so unthinkable that you could actually steal the 4102 O-plan for the defense of Europe. In like a duffel bag. Yeah, and that this information was out there. This wasn't even an SD chip. This was paper documents. Back then, you had to take huge risks. You had to carry stuff out physically. And uh, now, I wouldn't even want to be a counterintelligence officer. I just don't know how you can cope with it. Obviously, there'd be a menu of things, do's and don'ts. Computers in certain areas wouldn't be equipped with thumb drive capability, and there's all sorts of stuff you could now do. But back then, Conrad was getting away with it. Morale was relatively low in the Army. This all started post-Vietnam malaise. He he was rat out by uh, members of the two intelligence services that um, the information went to. So the, this the compromise of his operation was not because of something he did wrong, although one would like to think we would have eventually caught on to him, but you can't be sure of that. People who received the information and were so 
you know, they wanted to do victory laps when they'd read the stuff, and somebody couldn't keep his mouth shut. And people learned about it in the um, the receiving offices in the Hungarian Military Intelligence Service and the Soviet Intelligence Service, GRU. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that when the word spread around the Hungarian offices and Soviet offices, there were friendly ears listening. So the, so the Hungarians were working, obviously, f- for the Soviets. They were giving information to the Soviets. But you were getting your information or your targets from the agency. I know I'm treading on thin ice here. <laughs> but were you initially tipped off about Conrad from the agency that somebody is taking user documents? Yeah. Friendly eyes right. in those two hostile services Correct. passed the information to U.S. Army, U.S. civilian intelligence. And then the agency folks, somewhere around 1981 or two time frame, when I was commanding in Berlin, one of my best agents was co-opted and I had to send him off to a mission of which I had no need to know. Mm-hmm. It turned out it was the Conrad case and they were building a team. Mm-hmm. And resources for the team, each commander of each CI unit had to like, cough up. And you couldn't send some weekly agent. You had to send one of your superstars. That was in the early 80s. Somebody in MMBK-4 compromised the information. And somebody in the Soviet side of the house compromised the information, and it got into the hands of U.S. US civilian intelligence. Okay. And after that, it was just a matter of finding out which NCO had a, fed, had a copy machine. It, was, it, took, it took four or five years to figure out. And you just have to watch and collect and build a case. Was it more like law, law enforcement building a case? It's just a typical investigation, only the consequences of it are you know, quadruple. Looking for somebody who's shoplifting or who's committing some sort of a low-level felony mm-hmm. or even a crime of violence because this person is stealing top-secret code word information and getting it into the hands of our blood adversary in a theater where if a war were to start and the adversary was advantaged by having these war plans, your plan for defending Western Europe was somewhat undermined, which is probably a great understatement. You know, if you want to know the the nitty-gritty of it, the case, when I was involved in it, when we made the roll-ups, was 1989. Yeah, because Conrad was in August. That's when he was grabbed by the Germans at our behest. And then all was arrested two nights before Christmas Eve. It's the 23rd of December or so, because it was Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think this is 88, not 89. Because December 89, I mean, I was there when Hall was arrested. I was standing right, me to you, from it. Because it was my team that did it. And I was in the next room listening. That was 23rd of December 88, because in December 89, I was name-requested and yanked to Panama for the Operation Just Cause, the invasion right. of Panama. Even though I was still in command of FCA and working on the roll-up cases and Conrad and Hall and all that. So I was caught up on Christmas Eve, and uh, two days later, I was landing in Panama. So you hardly had time to celebrate catching two of the biggest... Well, we caught the two of them. We... Conrad we caught in August of 88 and then Hall, December, and then January 89 through the time when I got yanked to go to uh, 
just cause, we rolled up like what, 11 on the Conrad ring. I think we rolled up 11 agents who were people that Conrad or Zabo had recruited. And then um, Hall. Hall's out of prison now, isn't he? Hall's out of prison. Does everybody know where he is? The last I knew, a German filmmaker wanted to do a film, including Hall. And they approached me, and they told me that they had uh, managed to find him and talk with him. And somehow I I saw a video. I don't remember how I saw the video, but I saw a video of Hall talking to this reporter, this author, or producer, and saying, I don't want to talk too much about this. They'll have my ass if I talk about this. Well, can you at least tell me, you know, why you did it? And when it, he said, you mean what I did? And he said, yeah. And he said it was stupid. It's the stupidest thing I ever did in my whole life. Wow. Yeah. Because it cost him from, he was incarcerated from 88 to like, I'll just take a guess that it was about five years ago. Because mm-hmm. the Meister got released, finally. He had life in prison. And he was released. He was in prison in um, Lompoc, up the road here. So the Meister... Um, the reason I know this is he was released because he was a Turkish national in a U.S. prison for life. And Turkey has an interest, like any, a consular interest, in if they have nationals that are in foreign prisons, the consular channels keep track of that. And back then, as we were poised to strike Operation Iraqi Freedom, one unit was destined to invade northern Iraq, Mosul, through Turkey by the original plan. And the Turks were not playing ball. So somebody, some whiz kid in Washington said, what things can we do to sweeten the pot for the Turks so that maybe they'll let us access? We've got to land at a Turkish port, do a road march to the Iraqi border, and then swat Saddam's uh, country. Mm-hmm. So they decided there were some measures they could do that would maybe sweeten the pot for the Turks who were not being totally cooperative. One of them was they let the Meister go. They let him go. He'd been in prison since 88. It was 2003. So he'd been in prison for 15 years. So they let him go. But instead of going home to his wife in Turkey, he went back to Berlin. That's what I heard. But I don't know. I lost track of the Meister's back in Berlin. Yeah. I... But yeah, knowing that the Turkey's back is out, is on the loose again. He's on the loose for sure. That I know. Right. That's Henry after the fall of Saigon. Twenty-five years after the fall of Saigon, I appeared on a documentary, and Kissinger called me up and said, "We need to have lunch." And what did you talk about? What can well about what happened the night when they pulled the plug on the evacuation? Right. I said in the BBC Discovery Channel documentary that there was no North Vietnamese surrounding the embassy. We weren't taking any incoming fire. We had 410 more people to go, and it was a clean sweep. We would have put 3,000 people out of that embassy, 2,500 anyway. And the White House pulled the plug. And I'm assuming it was fog of war, and they just didn't know. And, of course, Kissinger was also interviewed for that same documentary, which is a great documentary, by the way. The BBC one, I haven't been able to get a hold of. BBC Discovery Channel, 1995, Mm -hmm. Fall of Saigon. Excellent. Anyway, he was in the White House when the decision was made. So when I'm saying, I have no idea, I'm assuming that what, you know, the White House pulled the plug, and it must have been fog of war. 
the ambassador had put her had put it off any plans of exfil for a long time, right? And when he finally did say, "Okay, let's leave," there was kind of a, a rush at that point. That's yeah. at least from my understanding. Yeah, that's, no, I wasn't there. And I, <laughs> that's sort of semi-true. The reality of it was that the depth of Clements was in the White House, and he was on the phone to the Pentagon, and the Pentagon was telling him that you know they were getting reports from the Hilo pilots and stuff that everybody's exhausted, somebody's going to get killed here, and there's North Vietnamese all around, and they're shooting at us and all that, and it turned out to be misinformation. Mm-hmm. As a result, Kissinger and Ford told the Pentagon, okay. It is now 2 a.m. Saigon time. You've got two hours, or maybe they did it in terms of sorties. 18 more helicopters, I think, or something like that. They picked a number and said, 18, and that's it. Because Martin was agitating. You can't leave all those people behind. Martin, having not wanted anybody to evacuate for weeks, suddenly wanted everybody out. Oh, the ambassador did? Yeah. Okay. That's what happened. They picked up, you know, they, they flew that many tail numbers in. And then it was over. People got left behind, about 400 of them. People whom I told, you know, over and over and over with a bullhorn, don't worry, don't go law, come I be lie. nobody's going to be left behind. I'm here. I'm going with you. Around and around with a bullhorn. Calmed everybody down. Then we left them. So I was pretty bitter about that, naturally, as was my two bosses. One of them was Colonel Harry, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Summers. So I testified to that, you know, on camera. About two weeks later, the phone rang. I was teaching at the War College by then. About two weeks later, the phone rang. At Stuart, my I'd like to speak to you Is about this something. Stuart Harrington, Colonel Harrington? Yes. Are you the Colonel Harrington who was in the documentary, Paul Saigon? Yes. He said, please hold for Dr. Kissinger. And he said, Colonel Harrington, that's an absolutely excellent performance, but you broke my heart. You broke my heart. We need to get together. I, you deserve to know what really happened. Can you come to meet me in New York City? And uh, we'll go to lunch. I said, well, it's really gracious of you to call, but I don't need to take your valuable time with lunch and travel to New York City. Just tell me what happened and <laughs> you know, we'll call it even. He said, what happened is we were not told there are 410 people remaining and it's a clean sweep as soon as they're gone. We were told that it was out of control, that the walls were bleeding people into the embassy, that uh, the situation was critical, and that somebody was going to get killed or a helicopter was going to crash. I said it wasn't like that at all. It was as quiet as a church graveyard. There was no North Vietnamese within two miles of the embassy. We had these 400 people. We had them under control. They threw away their suitcases except for one little handbag, and you guys pulled the plug. So he told me what happened, and I said, well, I deeply appreciate you calling. He said, I still want you to come to New York. And he was adamant, come to New York. That's the least I can do is buy you lunch. So I said, well, I'm going to visit my family in New England in a couple of weeks. I could detour, and I could park in Fort Lee and take the you know, the train over and I could meet you. So we met at, uh, on Park Avenue at the Four Seasons restaurant and had a two-hour lunch. And after he explained everything to me, which was very gracious of him to do, 
He said, what else can I do for you? I said, you could do one thing for me that would really be great. I'm teaching at the War College now, and I know that you haven't spoken at War Colleges since the fall of Saigon, and I know it must be sensitive for you since your hopes were on the Paris Treaty, but if you could come and speak to the War College, that would be great. I said, I already checked, and I know that your uh, honorarium is $50,000, and I have to tell you that the War College doesn't have $50,000, They have a standard $5,000. He said, don't talk to me about money. I will do it. So that's when he came to the War College. Oh, wow. And out in the museum. And then there's another picture of him and me at the Four Seasons. That's William Webster, the head of the CIA, giving me one of my two CIA agency seal medallion awards next to the Kissinger thing. Right here. There, yeah. Well, we can wrap this up. I'd love to go see the pictures that you yeah. have if you, if you want. But is there anything else, anything from the book? I know it was probably, you know, you did, you know, you did, I mean, you wrapped up two, two maybe three rings of spies in Berlin your time in the 80s. But um, is, can you give us, give me an idea of how many that you, that were there that you might have missed or that oh, could have happened? <clears throat> That's the great unknown. You know, that's right. the thing that Rumsfeld always was fond of saying. There are things you know, there are things you don't know, and there are the things that you don't know that you don't know. Okay. The known unknowns or the unknown unknown knowns. Right. Yeah. That, that's it's one of those. Who knows? Yeah. You know, everybody thought we'd done a pretty good job and eliminated some of the most serious problems. Then along came the Trokimov book. You know, the Matrokin book. The Matrokin. The Matrokin book, which had, amongst other things, that Colonel Trokimov. And they're the American full colonel. It's it's a, a given that you, you don't get them all. It's just, a, it's just the nature of the beast. But you got a lot of them. We did. We did. We got a lot of them. It was a, an amazing, extremely, you can imagine how high speed it was for me, from Berlin in 83 through now and everything that we've just talked about including trips to two you know two months to two and a half months to Desert Storm five months to Panama while still in 06 command then get out of the army and go to work for Callaway Golf as their director of global security and investigations and start putting people in jail for counterfeiting and intellectual property theft and all that and suddenly the phone rings and now you're on your way to Guantanamo and you go to Guantanamo, and uh, next thing you know, you get back, and next Christmas you tell your family, "I'm not going to. Daddy's going to be home for Christmas." And the phone rings, and it's Christmas Eve again, and on your way to Desert Store. Off you go. Yeah, you had a treadmill. I was very blessed, you know. All where whatever whatever was hot and whatever was going on, I had the opportunity to partake, but it was very difficult on the family. Any general lessons learned that you want to share about our life in intelligence and counterintelligence? You know, they divide the world up by by turf, by geography, and they have number of groups that are responsible for this piece of turf and that piece of turf, and that immediately brings a competition for resources and a competition for recognition and the, the inevitable parochialism, bad blood sometimes. And sometimes things drop through the crack. For example, you know, all the interrogation lessons learned and all, you know. We did a vault file on the Panama Project. 
And in fact, when Saddam invaded Kuwait, I got a copy of that vault file and I sent it up to the commander of the, sent him the report and it dropped through the crack. They didn't even, couldn't even produce it when I finally got over there and said, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And Parochialism. So you think if people took the eye out of their story, we might work together a little better? Yeah, but it's built right into it. People that work in intelligence work are their own special breed of cat. And there is this tendency to be looking over your shoulder and who's getting something that I'm not getting. Why is he in my turf? My people could have done this just as well if given a chance. That sort of thing. There's the fall of Saigon. That's me. Oh, you have a picture getting into the back of a marine helicopter. Hurting Vietnamese. Right. That's my North Vietnamese counterpart in Hanoi. There's Kissinger. Right. There's Conrad. Clyde Conrad when he was arrested. Had he dyed his hair? No, he had white hair. He really had white hair. white. And here he is 18 months later when he was convicted coming out of the courtroom in Koblenz. 60 pounds lighter. That's the director of the CIA giving me that a couple of medals you didn't see in there. Mm -hmm. I got it. The agency seal medallion. And who are these gentlemen? There's a picture of the Ober... That's the court, the high court. Gary Pepper, you know him? No, no. How did you know that was Gary Pepper? Just your, your book. Oh, from the thing. Yeah, That's Norman picture. Runk, That's who headed Norman the Conrad Runk. team in Wiesbaden. There's the Meister. There he is. There's James. This is the... Um, James Hall. Yeah, this is the uh, Hall team. This is Red Square. That's Red Square, Task Force Russia. And that's the vice president of Panama, Ricardo Arias Calderon. I was his advisor, his uh, security advisor, as he was building the government once we took out Noriega, mm-hmm. i.e. vetting, you know, who who's dirtier than Noriega? Right. You want to have a government. You don't want to have a government that's a Noriega government without Noriega. This guy was a Catholic philosophy major, professor, very decent man. And as he built his team, I vetted them, you know, from our interrogation reports. Did you keep some in government that were loyal to Noriega, or did you remove everyone? No, you couldn't remove everyone. The country would have stopped and not run. Mm-hmm. You just had to look at who were the real malientes, the real bad, bad right. guys, and uh, give him advice so that as he built his team, he didn't put someone in there who would be poisonous to the image of the team in its effectiveness right. to be a decent government. But that was different than Iraq, where kind of summarily dismissed everybody that was a member yeah, of the Yeah, de-rathification. It was a mistake. Right. And it would have been a mistake if I had done it here with him, but, but I you, didn't. But you knew that it was a mistake early on. Well, I knew from the interrogation center and all what we were doing here, a couple hundred reports of about 70 sources, I knew very accurately who the people were that no way, no how did he want to put into a position of responsibility and authority. And uh, that was the contribution that the interrogation center made. Is that you? Yeah, that's me. You look young. Yeah, I was. That's an What's Iraqi. What's the two st- stars? That's a full colonel's rank in the Saudi army. Oh, okay. Just, just so like, you, you know, I ran the center. Just like in Panama, I ran the center, but I had a tie here. Mm-hmm. Here, I ran, established and ran the interrogation center. And then I had a full colonel Saudi who was my counterpart. But he didn't know that we were running the center. Right. That's an Iraqi brigadier. 
48th Division Brigade Commander, very decent fellow. This is in Baghdad, Operation Iraqi Freedom, when I went over there after I was out of, out of uh, you know, retired. And they gave me Bob Watson from FCA and another guy, Jerry Pfeiffer. These were my two escorts. Mm-hmm. Is the FCA still around, or has it been taken over by the FBI? And- no, FCA is under uh, 902nd, last I knew. Okay. Can't keep track. There's Abu Ghraib. Mm-hmm. Oh, you went to Abu Ghraib. Look at this. These were all over Panama City. Soldado Americano, gracias. La libertad y la democracia. Te saludan. Te saludan. Yeah, 20 December 89. Was that just propaganda or were they generally? No, they were thank you. Well, there was gracias, Senor Bush, and thank you, President Bush, and posters like this. And it wasn't, the Americans didn't create the posters. Mm-hmm. The Panamanians did. It was all over. So they did create those. Thank you, Senor Bush. I've got pictures of it. Walls along the, you know, the seawall along the, the mm-hmm. thing there in Bay of Panama with graffiti every hundred feet. Well, and, I'd like know. to shut off the recording. I just wanted to say thanks for um, thanks for your time. Yeah, and I'm very glad job. to do it. Glad to do it. And that's my interview with Stuart Harrington. His book Traders Among Us and Stalking the Viet Cong are available in print and highly recommended. Stewart also appears in the Rory Kennedy film Fall of Saigon, giving a moving account of the difficulty of leaving so many behind. If you are enjoying this podcast, find us on thelivedrop.com and the live drop on all social media platforms. End of transmission.